0: Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people, your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. This is Marin Costello Radio. have such a cool and interesting guest on today's show. Cody Sheehy is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker responsible for the creative vision and execution of high-impact documentary and social media campaigns at Remline Media. His films are focused on stories about our changing world told from the perspective of people intimately connected to science and the natural environment. He obtained a master's degree in ecology from Oregon State University and founded the online collaborative video platform called Filmstacker in 2016. Cody, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you.
0: So, I'm just so, I'm always so pleasantly surprised by the guests that we have on and just how multifaceted and just so interesting they all are. And you might be one of my most interesting guests, I have to say. You're so well-rounded. I feel like you pull from both right brain and left brain, and we're going to talk about all the things on today's show. So the first question that I want to start with, and we like to do this on all of our shows, is what was little Cody like? (laughs)
1: but someone told me when I was a little kid one time you're the most tenacious little kid that I've ever met or actually it's persistent you're the most persistent little kid that you've ever met and so um, I guess I just was asking a lot of questions and really uh, really engaged to the point where you know some people (laughs) wanted me to take it down a notch but
0: well when you and I first spoke you mentioned how when you were younger you effectively wanted to be a scientist and not that there's not science in cinematography but that makes a lot of sense that you were so inquisitive because that is I think the backbone of science is asking questions and finding answers
1: yeah I mean my my early interests you know I grew up in a small town um, there wasn't like a film school nearby and everyone said what well, you should be is a you know a doctor or an engineer or something like that and so I started out in engineering and then ended up in science and, and worked in that world and and explored that world and met a lot of scientists. And I do love the scientific community, but I always knew that, you know, I had this like storytelling drive. I was a little bit different than that community, which is all about curiosity and uncovering answers, but the story element was something I really was drawn to. And so, you know, over the years, um, I shifted out of that and into storytelling about science and now storytelling just in general about the, about documentaries and, and uh, the world we live in. So.
0: Do you remember your first memory of storytelling? Was there a moment in time where you went, oh, this is so interesting to me, or did it build over time?
1: Well, I had an interesting family. And... For some reason, it wasn't, I don't think it was like intentional, but we didn't actually have a television until I was probably somewhere in high school. Um, and so I have these like very intense childhood memories of, we would go to like, I don't know if you remember this, because this is going to date me a little bit, but you used to be able to like rent a VCR. Yeah. At, you know, some, some uh, blockbuster or something. So we would rent this VCR. And we all got to pick three movies. And so we, so me and my brothers and sisters would pick these movies and we would spend all weekend just watching movies. And then, you know, I wouldn't really be exposed to it for, I don't know, weeks or something or a month until we decided to do something like that again. So those times were really intense. And I think, um, you know, I just really was impacted by that. And I used, I remember just to keep this going just a little longer, but I remember like going out. And trying to replay the movie in my mind and see how how far I could get, and then the next day we still had the movie, so I'd watch it again and and, you know try to get as far as I could, like replaying it in my mind. And I think that was an odd thing to do, but I think it really helped me think about the movie differently and kind of the structure of it and stuff like that. So number
0: one, I. I think it's very refreshing that you didn't have exposure to movies until later on, but I think it's so interesting that now, like something that wasn't necessarily part of your childhood up until being a teenager in high school is now, you know, a huge part of your ecosystem professionally.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it is kind of funny, but that impression was strong. And so I was just drawn to it all the time and spent the rest of my life trying to figure out how to actually do that. And, uh, yeah so now of course I'm just absolutely immersed in it and right now I'm at a film festival in in Sarajevo and I'm with these other filmmakers from around the world and learning how they approach story and and uh, you know it's just been a really wonderful uh, situation so
0: And your film is being showcased at the current film festival that you're at correct
1: Yeah that's right so my last film was called Make People Better and it's about the the first you know, genetically designed babies that were created and it was happened in China in 2018. Um, And my film team had a a front row seat on telling that story, which ended up being a really controversial subject. And the scientists who created the babies, you know, eventually um, was disappeared for a while and then was sentenced to prison over the whole thing. So we were just right there the whole time filming that and, and it just ended up being an amazing story with a really strong character who's torn between right and wrong and people are pushing him to do it, but it's, you know, it's an ethical uh, dilemma that uh, the film really unpacks. And um, anyway, so it premiered at Hot Docs, uh, which is a, a big festival in Canada this year and then was picked up for distribution internationally. And then it's been showing in festivals around the world. And I was invited to this one and, and I'm really happy uh, for al jazeera balkans is the festival i'm at right now and it's they're great and so it's been really fun to be here
0: that's great how do you get in touch with people like the doctors that you were just speaking about to do a documentary how does that even cross your path how do you then think oh i'm gonna actually do a film on this how do all of those parts come together
1: yeah i mean it's really it's i think every project has a unique story so there's really no um, answer that's gonna be, that's gonna work for every project. But in this case, you know, one day phone rang and somebody that I'd never met before, who was a genetic engineer in the field was looking for a filmmaker to make a documentary because she recognized that there was this massive gap developing between um, the public and what was going on in science. And so she just knew that this really needed to be, Told as a documentary. And so we started working together and developing that. And we set out to make a big, broad thing that would explain the whole genomic revolution, which has so many different parts that are going to affect our lives in so many different ways. And that's the film we started to make. But then what happened is what always happens in a documentary, which is once you get into it, <laughs> it starts to um, unravel in front of you. And, and sometimes you have to be ready to recognize the story within the story. And so we kept hearing over and over, there's probably the first babies will be created. It's going to be a big controversy. It's probably going to happen in China. We just kept hearing it over and over. So we, we organized an expedition to go to China and film there and try to find all the gene editors that were there. And we met this one scientist um, whose nickname is JK. His name is Dr. He. Uh And he, we talked to him for a little while and just realized like, this is the guy. He's doing it. And we, at that point pivoted to just focus on him, focus on that story. And we were glad we did because having a great character like that is what makes a documentary work really well. So.
0: So my initial question, just from a business perspective was one, did you get funding? And if so, just in general on a project, say you get funding and the investors think that the documentary is on you know, one particular subject, but then it unravels, and then it turns into something else. How does that political dance work Uh if they now are then funding something that maybe is slightly different from what they thought in the beginning?
1: Yeah, um, well, man, that is a really tricky question. So it's hard to answer. And in our case, um, we were, a lot of the funding was like pretty open to letting us do what we wanted to do initially. And then once we stumbled into this great story, we really moved into a different kind of funding, which was investors who see potentially a big doc and they come in when sort of all the major pieces are there and that you really just need the money to bring in kind of like an A team at the very end to edit and post and marketing and stuff like that. And so at that point for that second group, the story was known and they knew it was going to be of high impact, I guess. Now, that is not always how it works. And so there's all kinds of different documentaries out there, of many stripes. There's small ones. There's big ones. There's ones that are funded right out the gate by Netflix or something like that. And they have way less control. You know, there's there's a, uh, executives that are looking at what you're doing all the time. And so I'm in the indie space. And the indie documentary space is where those really great stories come from, where you have a filmmaker that's really connected to the story and intimately able to spend sometimes five years or more filming a subject, you know, and often it's a first time filmmaker. That's kind of the neat thing about documentary is some of the best films are made by first time filmmakers that have that connection to a story that's happening in their life. And there's no one else who's going to make that. It's them. If you're waiting for a big Netflix team to fly in and tell this great thing that's happening of you, Don't wait, start filming, because that's probably your story. And uh, it's great that way. And and the indie documentary world, you know, fosters that and helps that. Um, And so, yeah.
0: (laughs) I love it. My next question is two parts. One, how many films have you made? And two, how did the team from your first film differ from the team from your second film or current film?
1: Yeah. So I'm on my fourth one right now. Make People Better was my third one. And I made a lot of little things and a lot of things for PBS that were more um, just kind of television kind of documentaries. So the first one that I would say is like a national, nationally aired one was about water. It's about the water crisis in the Southwest. The next one was about wildfires. So you can kind of see there's like a theme of the nature and science developing there. And then genetic engineering came along and it's a little bit different, but it still had that science component Um, and that's that one kind of blew things up for me and I connected to some of the top people in the industry and and so now on the fourth film I'm starting with that new team right out of the gate and I'm really excited about it and it's about a guy a, a man who befriended a giant manta ray in Mexico and lived with this manta ray for 20 years and it's a remarkable friendship between a human and an animal it's it's uh, it's a roller coaster. It's sad. It's a tearjerker. It's also really exciting because he was able to create the first Manta protections in Mexico. So it, there's a lot in this story, and I'm I'm really excited about how that one's going to pan out.
0: Wow, how long have your documentaries taken you to conceptualize and then start filming and then finish and then edit and then ultimately get you to a position where you are now at a film festival?
1: Yeah, the fastest I've ever done a feature doc, which is, you know, let's say 80 to 90 minutes, is two years. Um, But make people better was probably around three and a half years, something, maybe four years. So it takes a while.
0: Initially, my thought goes to the influx of revenue right because if your projects are every two years and perhaps the influx of revenue is you know in batches every year two years or so how does that work from a business perspective of keeping both your lives your family's lives afloat and also making sure that you're producing a good film is it more compounding like the more documentaries you have the better it is because there's more of you out there as far as your craft? Or are there other things that you're doing in between that are, you know, helping to make sure that you're giving each project the time that it really deserves, even if that's years after when you initially thought, because that's a story that I hear often.
1: Yeah, well, I think each filmmaker has to kind of find their own path to make their life sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in my case, I worked for a university and set up a university documentary unit. So I you know, I had a position at the university that supported me and you'll see other filmmakers that teach at universities and, and things like that. So you might have this film related job on the side and then you work on films also not expecting that that's going to carry the load. Um, then the next kind of tier up are, are filmmakers that do have commercial products that are making money. And that money um, can come in a couple different ways. Sometimes there's a big deal at the beginning. And so you might get paid, you know, if there's a bidding war between Netflix and HBO, that number can get very big for some filmmakers. It's not something to count on and it's like getting hit by lightning, but you may get a huge deal out, out of the gate. The more likely scenario is if you do make a sale, the sale might be contingent on the money that it earns in the marketplace. And so it'll come over a period of a year or two years or some films have a long life and they, they still make money for the filmmakers. And then you do another one and another one and in that case, it is a bit compounding, like you're saying. So, so the, uh, you know, it, it can grow. And then now with social media and the explosion of all these new technologies and the marketing is flowing into that in different ways. There's a lot of, other revenue streams that you can generate Um, donations uh, product placement um, all kinds of stuff you know advertising if you're using something like youtube you know they share revenue with you so all these things can be kind of combined into revenue streams for filmmakers so it depends Um, i can keep going if you want because this is this can be a very complicated topic yeah
0: no, <laughs> I mean, yes, lay it on us.
1: <laughs> All right. So if you have a major film, the way the revenue comes in typically is it's broken into first, it's going to be a theater release and that is a, becoming a smaller and smaller thing. Then it goes to the kind of the pay, pay-per-view type of clicking where you, you try to sell it as much as you can. And it's going to, that's where the real revenue is. And then I think a lot of people are like, oh, I made it on Netflix. That's the biggest thing ever. Often that's your smallest share of revenue is the deal with Netflix at the very end. And as they take over the entire marketplace, you can kind of understand why the writer's strike and why the actor strike is going on is because the revenue going to the artist has become so tiny in the streaming world now as the streamers take over. So that's a big challenge, honestly, for the whole business model.
0: If Netflix is the smallest piece of the pie, then where do the other deals come from?
1: So I have a distribution company for making people better, which is out there making deals all the time domestically. And so, you know, it was on Amazon Prime for a while and then that window closes and then they've got a deal somewhere else and then it goes to uh, 2V and then it goes to here and it goes to there. So there's like, it just is like, I don't even know where it is right now. It's in so many different places, you know, and that's what they're doing. And they're taking a cut, of course. (laughs) And then some comes to me then, and that's domestic. On the international side, there's another distribution system and they don't do big releases. They go country by country by country, film festival by film festival, TV station by TV station and pick up all these little tiny little revenue streams and uh, you'll get a report every three months or six months, depending on the contract, find out what you're earning and, uh, you know, you you the filmmakers at a little bit of a disadvantage because you have to trust them. And some of these companies are shady. So be careful who you work with.
0: I'm going to pivot a little bit here just because it is one of the coolest fun facts I've heard about a person in a very long time, but you live partially during the year in Mexico with your wonderful wife and little baby on a boat. I am so curious as to what led you there because that is so interesting and so cool and so intentional. So I imagine that there are a lot of really calculated reasons of why that would be your way of life. And it's so interesting. So please share with us.
1: Well, I love sailing and I love living on a boat and it's probably my number one passion is actually the sailing. Um, I've I don't know. I've always been attracted to that. And and so the way I got started was I was in college and I was looking for a place to live. I didn't know anything about boats. I grew up in the mountains. And I had this girlfriend who said, Oh, I, I hear that you can get a boat and to live on that machine cheap." And so I did that and I just totally fell in love with it. I never looked back. So I've lived on boats most of my life since then. And uh we uh we started sailing um right after we got married, we got married and then went on a year-long cruise down to Nicaragua and then back up
0: and eventually
1: kind of landed in Mexico and, and, uh, went back to work for a while. And then the world changed a little bit and now you can work remotely. And so now we're back on the boat and around in the winter for, you know, seven months at a time living on anchor uh, on the hook, you know, in a bay somewhere or whatever. And then, uh, you know, working and stuff and there's, there's a whole community of, sailors that do that uh, a lot of them started this like you know a long time ago so a lot of people start when they're retiring. actually that the first big wave of people to do this started in, like the 70s and 80s and so and they're kind of the retirees. and now there's a new wave of young people coming in similar to like the van life movement that have discovered sailing and you see it, a lot of kids there now and um it's it's interesting <laughs> i love it it's just it's great
0: that is just so cool. And did your wife like sailing before she met you? Or did you introduce she, her to the world?
1: She had no clue about sailing. And uh, yeah, she met me and we went down to the marina one, one day to take a look at my boat. and And, you know, it was all new to her for sure. And she's been wonderful about, you know, expanding her mind and her idea of what life can be and learning to love it because it is really, really different. And it's not for everybody, you know, there's there's really some things about it that uh, can be challenging. And so, you know, she's learned to love all that and, and grow into it. And now my son is growing up in a, and he'll be a, an amazing sailor. And it's, it's gonna be incredible to see him grow up in this environment, I'm just really excited for that, so.
0: What are your favorite things about that environment?
1: Well, you're really connected to nature, and you're connected to the weather. It's it's. I, I love to hike and do things like that, but being on a boat where you're anchored out somewhere when the weather comes and it sometimes it'll be blowing so hard that you can't get off the boat for days at a time. There's waves all around you, and you're you're hanging by you know a one inch rope off the front of your boat. You can hear it straining up there, and and you're just you know intimately in tune with the waves and the wind and if something goes wrong you know immediately and then and then when you're actually sailing out on the sea it's the same thing you spend a lot of time out there and the animals you spend so much time there the the dolphins and the whales and and everything the birds you're just part of that you become part of it and that is a really great feeling that i didn't ever know that i was missing until i started to connect to it and uh I don't ever want to not be connected again, to be honest.
0: That must be a great testament to how grounded you are because you have such grounded, peaceful energy. I imagine that is because you are so connected to nature.
1: I think it's part of it. Yeah. I mean, and and also, you know, just I think the more experiences that people have in life and they just learn that, I mean, I what I've learned in life is that everybody has a great story everybody is trying to do good in their life and for their people, the way that they see it almost always rarely is there like an actual bad person out there. They're there, but I mean, it's so rare, you know, and, uh, I I just, all these things, I think have, that's how I approach life anyway. So.
0: As far as community goes, are you connected to certain people in different areas being a sailor or do you just meet new people when you decide to, you know, move to a different place? How does your <laughs> sense of community work or do you just have people all over because of the lifestyle?
1: Well, the sailing community is is so transient that everybody has become really good at making friends really fast. Mm-hmm. And then also you're having such intense experiences with them often you know people will be stuck in a storm together or what you know these experiences happen so then you you develop really great long-term friendships too so it ends up being both um there's new people coming and going all the time and there's old friends that all of a sudden they come into the anchorage and you're like oh wow it's this boat i know those guys and you're just like so excited to see them again after a year or two and figure out where they've been and what adventures they've had and uh, it, so there's a lot of awesome friendships in the sailing community and everybody in that community wants to help each other too it's it's a tribe and they band together because when you're out there on your own they're the ones who are going to help you and so it's just part of the fabric of it
0: that's so beautiful how much of the year do you spend on the water and then how much of the year do you spend on land and where is that
1: yeah so we start in mexico in october which is hot water's hot and it's uh you it's really great and then it starts to turn into the winter time and the storms will come in the sea of cortez and so then you spend a lot of time kind of anchored in like really good places that are super solid for the big storms and, and you ride that out and then spring comes and it'll be warm again the water's still cold but the Temperature gets warm, you start to adventure. And a great thing is the wind changes direction. So now you can go to all these other anchorages you haven't been able to go to. So it's the second half of the year is really awesome. And then towards the end of May, end of June, it's too hot. And so certain things will happen. Some people are going to ride it out and they go up to this place called uh, Bahia Los Angeles and they just suffer up there in the heat. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but it's an intense thing that they love. And, you know, I, I, I'm happy for them. And then other people put their boats away and come back again in October.
0: And then when you're done with that season, where are you?
1: Well, so we used to have a house, but we and that was in Arizona, but we sold it because it just didn't make sense to keep it after a while. And so my family's from Oregon, so I'll go up and visit them for a period of time. And then my wife's family is from Finland. And so this summer, you know, I'm in Europe and Finland, and we, our plan is to kind of alternate between those two colder climates.
0: You're so well-learned and so well-traveled. Do you speak more than one language?
1: I know a little bit of Spanish. I don't know Finnish, uh, and that, it would be good if I did for the family aspect. (laughs) It's a very difficult language. And I wish that I knew more languages. And I think that's one thing that Americans, you know, compared to Europeans, we just don't have that language skill. A lot mm-hmm. of us didn't learn multiple languages as children. So it's even harder for us, you know, later in life to pick it up. And I am challenged on that front. And it's one of my weaknesses.
0: Same. I, I for the amount of years that I spent in Spanish class, I sh- certainly should be <laughs> fluent, like more than fluent. And I think that on a good day I could probably wing a Spanglish, but yeah. that's like on a very good day. I'm I'm due for some Spanish classes to, okay. to get back into lingual shape. Um, question for you on the business of filmmaking. So I'm curious, we talked a little bit about funding, but I'm curious what your team looks like, what the structure of filmmaking looks like. Um, I know you also mentioned that your wife has been a huge part of the business of your world um as far as you know the business of filmmaking can you tell us about what your team looks like
1: yeah so my wife has got a, bit, a better business sense than I idea and so she runs it, it is a business so we have quickbooks and we're sending invoices and, and all the things that be associated with a regular business paying payroll taxes and on and on and on so there's that um, but the team typically will disperse and then reform when there's a project and People will go to other projects, a little bit like sailors, honestly. They kind of, you know, they come and they go. And sometimes um, a group of people will be together for years working on projects and one will split off or something. And so that core group can change. And so right now I'm working with um, a a really celebrated writer-producer, Mark Monroe. And we just had Andrew Buckland join our team as an editor. So he edited Ford versus Ferrari and he just edited the last Indiana Jones movie. And it was so awesome to talk to him about that. Um, So we're putting together a really great team, you know, and so it's gonna be a little bit different this time. Um, Then there's the funding world. So you gotta also develop relationships with your executive producers and other people that can help you raise the money. And so the whole financial aspect of of funding the film is part of the team. And then we have a legal person, a lawyer, Wilder Knight and he's awesome. And, you know, see, there's a big legal component to filmmaking, getting access to people, getting access to the rights to footage, music, composers, you know, so, so there's a team that
0: formed. How many of the people from past films have you brought on to partner with in your, you know, more current past films and then your current film that you're working on now?
1: Yeah, so with Make People Better, um, the the main person that I brought from there was Mark Monroe, and he he is really experienced and is the senior person really on, on the team in terms of experience. Um, so I'm the director, but he has opened so many doors for me and helped me bring in new team members like Andrew. And then I'm bringing the composer over to a guy named Tyler Strickland, who's just like a wonderful um, – musician and so he's he's coming on board and uh that's that's it for the moment um we have a new uh director of photography oh the sound my sound guy has been with me the whole time and we work on everything together and so that that is probably my longest team member is is galen and galen and i have gotten along so well and he's so creative
0: how long is that work friendship
1: oh it's going on uh Eight, eight years probably, um, three eight. projects now. Yeah, three big projects.
0: That's so great.
2: Yeah. So,
0: well, before I get into a more detailed question, what's your favorite movie as a filmmaker?
2: Uh,
1: documentary, documentary or narrative?
0: Both and.
1: I would recommend for documentary a movie called Last Breath. Uh, it is an undiscovered hit on Netflix and once you start watching that movie you you're riveted you're on the edge of your seat so what it's about is these guys who are deep sea diving up in the north atlantic and this is they're putting in these oil rig things on the bottom of the ocean up in this like crazy weather up there everything is filmed with helmet cameras and stuff It's all real footage and this accident happens and what I mean, you just have to watch it it's just riveting it's so good
0: I'm, um, I'm tempted to put it on tonight when i'm you know <laughs> at emails on my computer that'll be the background music
1: yeah last breath um for narrative wow i don't know that's tough really be been en- yeah i've really been enjoying dune and i'm looking forward to the next one to come out for that um I grew up watching Star Wars and Indiana Jones and and those movies. So they're always like, you know, some of my favorites. Uh, That's like comfort food to go watch those.
0: I love it. So you're passionate about filmmaking, you're passionate about sailing, you're also passionate about genetics. Can you talk to us for a genetics novice who doesn't maybe know as much about the industry currently? Can you tell us about? why it's important, what you're excited about?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's an incredible revolution, really, that's about ready to kind of hit the world. Um, it hasn't quite broke yet, but it will. And we, we, we sort of interact with genetics, like, oh, genetically modified food. But what's coming next is genetically modified people. And so when you think about um, what kind of traits we all wish that we had or people that we admire that that are more beautiful or more intelligent or more athletic or whatever they have that you think you want there's a lot of commercial value associated with that and also parents always want the best for their children and so if there's other parents that are paying five or ten thousand dollars to make sure that their baby's healthy. And then also, you know, if they're the kind of person that really, if they're very intellectual themselves, they might be interested in uh, maybe increasing the intelligence a little bit. Or if you're someone who had a great sports career, maybe you would want to make your kid a little bit faster and stronger, you know? And so you can see these, these ideas of how the next generation or generations or evolution of the human species will start to change for very different reasons than it used to. It used to be nature shaped us. Now it's gonna be commercial marketing, um, the interest of governments, what they might want for their people. These are the new forces that are gonna shape the evolution of the human race. And uh, it's just absolutely happening right now. And so our film was you know, about the first designer babies. They were designed, they were enhanced, to be immune to HIV, so that they can never get the virus that causes AIDS, HIV. So that's that's an advantage that they have over the rest of the human race. And so, and that that was a very easy thing to do, and that's why they did that first. But there's a lot of things that can be done. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what is it?
0: Is this a like create your own baby before and then it's created in a lab? Is this a baby that's affected in the womb? Is this post-birth? Then you can, you know, modify certain things. Can you have one thing? Is the entire menu available to you? Is it a price ticket thing? I mean, I have so many questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So to edit an adult can be done. It's more like targeted though. So right now, anything that can be attacked through the blood is a really good way to get a genetic edit into your body. So they're a little more limited then, but if you were to edit a baby when it's an embryo, then you can modify the entire organism at once because you only have to change a few cells. So it's very easy. And so germline editing is what what you do for a baby and, and it's, it goes hand in hand with IVF. So in vitro fertilization, um, one out of every 85 babies in the United States right now is born through IVF. It used to be very controversial too. And that industry has grown and grown and grown. And now what happens with IVF is they will actually take the embryo out. They can edit, make the edits and then put it back into the mother at, and also fertilize it with the male sperm, which is why they took it out to the with for IVF and put it back in. So those two industries are merging. So it's genetic, Engineering and IVF are going to become part of the same thing. And then you can do a lot. The sky is the limit with, with uh, editing at the embryo level.
0: And you're saying that this is being done now. It's a it's present tense happening. How, what percentage do you know to be of the folks who are doing IVF? What percentage of the one in 85 is you know, subject to this additional modification?
1: Well, very, 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 very small. So mm-hmm. they, they are doing IVF to help the couple get pregnant. Mm-hmm. They're not doing the genetic modification yet. But what the Chinese scientist did was go ahead and make, the, make genetic modifications too. And he made three babies that are publicly known about and possibly others that are not known about um and then there are other babies out there that that are also not known about too and so a lot of this is very secretive and very shadowy still because it's illegal in most countries and it's ethically banned internationally still but that said um those ethical boundaries are there yet at the same time governments and scientists many of not all of them but a lot of them are pushing to do it and and they, they see this as the future, and they're racing against each other to perfect the technology, and that race continues, um, even though there are still ethical concerns.
0: Do you have, just because of your inside look into the industry, do you have any idea of the timeline of when it's just going to be relevant
1: well, so I asked a, a very prominent scientist, okay, now that the big scandals happen, the first person broke the glass and did it first. How long do you think it's going to take for the U.S. to start publicly, for scientists in the U.S. to start publicly kind of, you know, doing this also? And he was telling me about some some programs that are kind of aiming for about eight years from now. So I mm-hmm. think we're going to start seeing more babies coming out. And honestly, they will try to roll it out really like kind of boring like it's going to sound very medical it's going to be cloaked in science language um they don't nobody wants a big controversy like what happened last time and so that's kind of what'll happen is it'll just become you know something that can be done the scientists are doing it it's in nature's published this already happened 10 years ago so it's not really that big of a story and then and then we'll just start to kind of get more and more normalized with that it and it'll grow. So when are we all going to be edited? <laughs> I, I don't know, but probably it'll take decades. I would say for the industry to grow with IVF, it took like 30 years for that to really get going. So if things are similar, you know, but nowadays things happen a lot quicker. So
0: they do. And it's really interesting because I think when you put it into perspective of, you know, someone who's going through the process of IVF, this, you know, is an option for them. And then a version of it is also, you know, a, an option to a fully grown adult. So on one end of the spectrum, it is very probable that the majority of people will have some sort of genetic modification at some point, not that we already are, are, aren't already because of, you know, how compromised so many um, things in our world is. But that's very, very interesting does that excite you? Does it scare you? I mean, I feel like you're so in it that maybe you might be numb to it a little bit, but what are your like initial reactions to the work that you're putting out?
1: Well, I mean, I, I really just hope people start to talk about it now. Um, I hate to like give my opinion too strongly Mm -hmm. because I I honestly think it's not really my place to necessarily tell people what's right or wrong.
0: Um, It's more
1: important that people Truly start to think about this and talk about this now. Because with some technologies like social media or artificial intelligence, it by the time the public starts to talk about it and understand the the long-term impacts of it, it's way too late. And the same program would be rolled out with this if we don't engage with it now. So it's so we we're in a lucky position in that we really should weigh in on what we want our future to look like um, now. And so I encourage people to do that.
0: Yeah, what is your why, Cody?
1: Why I do what I do?
0: Just in general, yeah, what is your why? Your, Your work is very meaningful. Not that designing beautiful jewelry for people to wear isn't meaningful work, but this is like next level, highly impact, informative work that you're doing. What is your why?
1: Well, I'm curious, and these are the, these are the things that I want to know, and so mm-hmm. I just basically uh, take the audience on the same journey that I just would do, whether or not there was a camera there. Anyway, so I am curious, and that is my why. I want to know what's going on.
0: That's so cool. Do you have a lot of other films that are in the wings or projects that you're working on, you know, conceptually? If so, how many at a time do you have in your world?
1: Yeah, I'm, I think it's a good idea to really have one that's sort of, for me anyway, as a director, to have one that's really your centerpiece, Mm -hmm. that you're really focused on, um, and that you can put the deep time in on. I, I think the multitasking world that we all live in can really detract from, from deep work. And so I think with filmmaking, it's, it's important to put your film first. And then once it moves to a certain stage and the rest of the team comes to help, then I get more and more comfortable about, you know, filling out other ideas and seeing what might be next. And then you kind of might have two or three things that you're sort of like trying to water and grow. And then one of those is going to really start to go. And then, and then I try to pivot to that and, and give it the love and care that.
0: So. Do you have a morning routine or an evening routine or a daily routine that you engage in?
1: Well, now that I have a one and a half year old son, it, the routine is a hundred percent, whatever he wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone who really prizes their morning routine, they should think twice about having kids. Is what I would say.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, basically, you know, I, I, I do yoga. I, I exercise. Um, I should meditate more. Um, and those types of things I think are really, really healthy. But uh, I always try to spend at least an hour exercising, you know, and and uh, that's key for me in the morning to get going. And then I am really creative. This might be a more interesting answer, actually. So the creativity, I think, is something I've really tried to develop over the years. And I think it's different for everybody. But it's I think it's important to, like, figure yourself out. And for me, um, when I'm like waking up in the morning and I'm in that halfway asleep, halfway awake space, that is like prime real estate. And so I I will just try to expand that as much as I can and like bring in something that I'm working on, a project or a problem or a story. And just try to like mull it over, just plant it into that mental space there. Some people like say like when they're in the shower in the morning, they get ideas, I think they're in the same kind of space. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And suddenly inspiration can come from some other part of your mind that is open and free to happen. And maybe it's a bad idea. But the key thing is you're having all these great ideas. And then as I get a little more focused and I have my cup of coffee, I'll try to write all that stuff down. And then later in the day when I'm much more analytical and I'm getting work done and I'm writing something or whatever, I'll look at all those notes and be like, okay, that one was like, I don't know what that was, (laughs) but this other one, that's super useful, you know? And so it's kind of my palette that I'll work with for the day.
0: That's so useful. And so refreshing to hear that even as someone who doesn't have a child, sometimes my morning routine can get completely derailed. And sometimes there's good days and sometimes there's bad days. And, you know, I'm learning to give myself grace. But I love that it's just a practice of effectively being in flow and you figuring out, you know, of all the times in the day and all the different things that you do in the morning when you're kind of still in that dream state, that's that's money for you. Um yeah. so that's great. It's you know, learning oneself is that's the game that's you know why we're here to i feel like to figure ourselves out and and to love each other and you know that's what really makes the world go around thank you for coming to my TED talk um (laughs) when you and i first spoke you had such wonderful things to say about your wife just the energy around how you spoke of her and just your reverence for her as, you know, a support for you in business, for her as, you know, the mother of your son and just as a partner in general, what would your advice be to someone who um is looking for a partner or who has not yet found their life partner the way that you have?
1: Well, my wife and I make all our decisions together and she's she's really great and um we have a really neat story about how we met. So, we we were at a dinner with other friends and I just glanced around this table at the people that were there and I didn't know some of them and I saw her and I was looking at her and I saw that she was looking at me and I didn't look away and she didn't look away and then it got kind of awkward but she still didn't look away and I didn't look away and then it became like this is like really intense (laughs) and so then it was like okay this is something and we didn't talk at all for the rest of that dinner But everybody left one by one until it was just me and her. And then we like walked out together and basically I've never been separated since. So I don't know um, why that happened, but I'm I'm glad that it did. And I was older when I met her. Um, You know, I was uh, 31, I think. I had decided you know, I mean, I've had many great relationships, but I decided, you know, I want to do these things like live on a sailboat and be a filmmaker. And I don't know if I'm really good, great marriage material. And I should just, I'm very happy. I became happy knowing that I was on my own solo adventure. And and then I met her and I just changed my mind about that. So that was a really key moment. Um, I think at this point in my life, one of the great things about, my partner is that we're really good friends, you know, and um, a lo- that is what you're going to be with this person the rest of your, your life. You know, it's probably more important than your friends than any other thing. Although all of those things are really important, so I think it's kind of like a holistic thing. They, you know, your partner needs to be strong in all the categories you need, but uh,
0: but I really
1: prize you know friendship and trust and those types of things.
0: That's beautiful. What is your advice on parenting now that you are a parent to a <laughs> one and a half year old?
1: Well, it's been interesting because the kid kind of tells you what they need. And so it's been easier than I thought. Mm. Um, and they, they're sort of on a program, they're on a genetic program that they're going through and it's, I'm just along for the ride, trying to catch up half the time of what they are doing and learning. And, and, um uh, And it's, they, they just want your love and attention, you know, and it's really great because they, it just forces you to put the phone down and like focus on them because you can't not do it. They don't let you. And then also you feel so guilty. So it's like a really like wonderful thing, um, that way. And, uh, yeah, they're very challenging too, because you uh, have to focus on them all the time and make sure that they're safe and do they have what they need and your priorities definitely come second. (laughs) So
0: morning routine, getting a little creative. Yeah. What are you excited about in present, in present, you know, time and also in the future? What are you excited about?
1: Well, I'm really excited. There's so many things going on in the world right now um, that I think are like a lot of people get depressed about, which I do too. But on the other hand, there's so many things we don't talk about enough. And for me, one of them is like the remote work and the change in how we're all working and the ability for all of us to connect around things that we're passionate about mm-hmm. and the space and the economy and the need for that kind of creative power um, is awesome because I think so many people have so many things that they want to be doing and creative things that they want to do. And I think there's just so much opportunity right now for more and more and more and more people to, to have that kind of, um, satisfaction if that's what they want to do. So I find there's some like really neat things going on in the workspace, creative space. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're making progress on so many fronts with the, you know, climate adaptation. That's really exciting. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Mm-hmm. You know, solar is going in everywhere and it's great. So there's there's definitely some good news out there.
0: Where can we find you and how can we support you?
1: Well, if I could ask people to do one thing um, besides watch the film, but if they go to makepeoplebetterfilm.com, which is our website, and if you just Google make people better, you'll probably find us. And there's a podcast on that. And that podcast is seven episodes. And we go into all the dark corners and fascinating things about the genomic revolution that I haven't really got a chance to talk about fully. But I know that people are going to find it really interesting because it's just it's a, it's all these rabbit holes. It's great. So I think people should should listen to that if they want to. And uh, then they'll know what what they want to talk about and who they want to talk about it with
0: and get that conversation starting started so that we're not having it when you know in your words it's too late.
1: Yeah, it's in our interest to tell people what we want the future to be rather than find out what other companies or governments might want it to be for us. So
0: I meant to that well you're so wonderful and such a wealth of knowledge and i cannot i've took so many notes throughout this episode i can't wait to watch your films and all the films that you suggested and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day especially while you're at a film festival right now to come on the podcast it's really special i appreciate you so much
1: it's been an honor to be here and uh you're a great person and i just can't can't tell you enough about how awesome your energy is so keep doing what you're doing
0: Thank you so much. Have a great day, Cody. Yeah, you too. You guys, what an interview. A huge thank you to Cody for coming on the show. Another big thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and producers at Island City Media. If you like this episode, you can listen to it again and again on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review so we can continue bringing you the people and conversations that you love, just like Cody. Lastly, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me at MarenCostello.com. And Maran Costello Radio on Instagram. Have a wonderful day! Thank you so much to, to, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another amazing guest on Maran Costello Radio.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Baby, when I look through our life, all I see. His blessings unfolding. Oh, it's amazing how everything works out so right. Our love is never ending. Oh, then in a moment it seems I could. I've been a blessing since she came along. She's music to me, like the beat of a song. God knows that I've been. So quickly, life could never bring me the joy that I need if you weren't here beside me.